Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Hello, this is Colin. Welcome back from your weekends. If you're listening uh, right now at one o'clock on Monday, um, say a little prayer, say your mantra, do some kind of humanist thought beam, whatever works for you, that the power stays on because we we have a very big windstorm here in Connecticut right now. And if I were to lose power, I'd lose internet and we have to go to the mattresses, as they say in, in The Godfather. All right, so the whole weekend, I, I've been thinking about the question of benchmarks. Obviously, there's this conversation that's going on about how we, quote, restart, unquote, the United States uh, at the end of um, social distancing and uh, other measures meant to curb the spread of COVID. But the question is, how do we know? How do we even know when we're ready to start a plan? Uh, and what kind of benchmarks uh, are there that'll tell us uh, how we're doing? Uh, and we're gonna talk about that a couple of different ways today. And then at the end, we're gonna have a conversation with uh, someone whose background is more in philosophy, uh, who re- recently wrote about humanism in The New Yorker. Because you know when you, when you start talking about risk-benefit analyses, which is another term that's being circulated these days, it doesn't take long before you find some very moral and human questions nesting inside these risk-benefit analyses. So the whole show today will be about kind of the same things, but looked at in different ways. We're going to start with Dr. Allison Buttenheim, uh, an associate professor at the University of Pennsylvania School of Nursing and an associate director of Penn's Center for Health Incentives and Behavioral Economics. Uh, Dr. Buttenheim, welcome to our show. Thank you so much for having me. What a cool intro that was. <laughs> now I uh, want to listen to the rest of the show. Yeah, it's just me babbling, <laughs> basically. So what we're starting to see uh, is, I mean, the good news is we're starting to see a group of restart plans that, yes. uh, that hint at consensus. American Enterprise Institute, a very conservative think tank. Center for American Progress, a liberal think tank. Harvard's Safra Center for Ethics. Uh, Nobel economist Paul Romer. And despite the fact that they're coming at this from different angles, the good news, I think, is that there's a fair amount of consensus about what has to happen. Maybe you could say more. Sure. Um, One real consistent message we hear from all four of those plans is a four-pronged strategy. And all the images that they have to show their plans look like boxes, a little four-part box. Um, And these aren't going to be a surprise to anyone who's been following the pandemic. We've got to be able to test widely at scale. And that means both diagnostic testing, do people have the virus right now, but also serological testing, did they have the disease already? Really important. Second, we have to isolate cases. As soon as someone tests positive, we've got to either make sure they stay at home and can do that safely or bring them to some kind of centralized isolation facility if it's a mild case to ride out that disease. 
Third, we have to be able to trace the contacts of the positive cases. So this is just public health 101. This is, you know, shoe leather epidemiology. We have to ask you, where have you been the last two weeks? Track all those people down, let them know they've been exposed to a case and have them make a plan for the fourth strategy, which is quarantining of those exposed or probable cases. And again, that can be done centralized or we can uh, ask, require, demand uh, that people stay home. But without those four strategies in place, we cannot get back to business as usual. But it seems like we need to back up even beyond those and talk about some benchmarks that don't exist uh, right now. For example, here in Connecticut, where I'm sitting, we have 3.5 million people. 41,000 of them have been tested. In the U.S., we have 328 million people or so. 2.8 million have been tested. That would be less than 1%. So is there a a sort of an initial testing threshold that needs to be met before any of this other stuff that you just talked about starts to crank up as an engine? In other words, is there some percentage of the population Mm. that should be tested a priori? I think there's a lot of deferring opinion on that. And I think people's opinion has varied widely in part because of the realities of our testing capacity. So could we, you know, should we be testing? Could we be testing a million people a month? That would be great. Uh, We're not there yet. So to be able to say we have to be at 20% or 40% or 60% tested just hasn't felt very realistic. What we can do, of course, is just look at the number of cases, all those curves that we're meant to be flattening with all our, you know, staying at home, which is great, but we would want to see very sustained drops in number of new cases identified per day for several weeks uh, before we'd be confident that we're at least sort of over this particular surge. So that's a lot easier to track than um, than trying to hit some, some population level testing threshold. I mean, the other part of this is that the tests that we have now seem not entirely reliable. Most of them have been fast-tracked. ProPublica has uh, been doing some reporting about this, that it's, it's just unclear how much trust we could put in the kind of data that we're talking about. That's right. And we have to think about um, both the costs of tests that give us false positives and tests that give us false negatives. Um, Here, we have to be really careful about tests that give us false negatives, right? We don't want to tell someone they don't have the disease when they do. Right. It's like Pascal's wager. Uh, You'd rather have (laughs) false positives because ultimately there's less harm. If you have false negatives and you act on that supposition, uh, the damage gets to be kind of intense. You know, so there's diagnostic testing, there's serological testing. Here, I think it's also important to emphasize the number of question marks there are. Um, It's not clear, as I understand it, that this virus confers immunity. If it does confer immunity, we don't know for how long or how how comprehensive that is. Uh, Do 100 percent of uh, of people who survive the virus have uh, an immunity? We don't know any of those things, right? We don't know any of those things yet. Yeah. So many question marks and so many crossed fingers, because if it is not complete immunity um, and it doesn't last very long, then it's going to take even longer and, you know, definitely probably need to wait for a vaccine to get the whole population uh, exposed, you know, to get that level of herd immunity where we're, we're much, you know, it's much easier to go back to business as usual. Now, I, I would assume that 
being somebody who's who's working in public health, what you would like to avoid is any kind of yo-yo effect. In other words, a restart, then we watch, we watch some of these numbers, we watch some of these curves, we get reports back from hospitals, from ERs, uh, and, and if suddenly there are more signs again, there's more hospitalizations, there's more infections, uh, we go back to w where we started from. It would seem like that that kind of yo-yoing back and forth would be undesirable. It would be undesirable, although at this point, and call me a pessimist, I don't see how the next 18 months plays out in any other way besides that. Now, hopefully yo-yo won't be the right metaphor. Hopefully it'll be more like, you know, a slowly undulating roller coaster. Uh, but there is going to have to be some plan with, as you said, sort of triggers or benchmarks to ease up and ease back on the social distancing measures. Now, how you do that as a college or a university or a school system or a small business, I don't know. But there, there's no way in my mind that the, you know, 2020, 2021 school year looks like a regular year for anybody. The, uh, I mean, uh, another possibility, and it's certainly contained in the uh, plan by Paul Romer, Nobel Prize winning economist, is just crazy amounts of testing. And I don't mean that as a judgment, uh, the word right. crazy, but uh, he's talking about 22 million tests a day. So effectively, you would be testing the entire population of the United States every 14 days. And if you did that and you could do it effectively and you could get consent on that, um, you'd know pretty quickly, I would assume, if there was some new cause for concern. You would. Now, the testing is important, but you also have to then be able to do something with the people who test positive and do that contact tracing and quarantine. So the testing alone is fantastic, but insufficient. Um, you have to do the rest of it as well, or the cases start creeping up again. So, I mean, since part of your title includes behavioral economics, I feel like I can ask these questions to you. Sure. I mean, there are other issues about consent, compliance, privacy, stuff like that. So one of the great ways to do contact tracing would be to have something in our phones. And I think both of the major phone companies are now announcing that that, that, that probably will happen on at least a voluntary basis so that when you come to me and say, Colin, who have you come in contact with recently because you're, you know, you're COVID positive, um, you don't have to rely on my, on, you know, Swiss cheese like memory or my own level of truthfulness about who right. I'm hang, hanging around with. Yeah, that is, I mean, it, it sounds so ideal, right? We carry these little computers around. We, we, they talk to other little computers when they're next to them via Bluetooth. All that data are there. And if we can somehow solve people's privacy concerns, which are real, um, that would be a great tool. Because the alternative is this, you know, this great workforce that everyone keeps mentioning, this, you know, army of, of public health trained uh, professionals and, and, you know, students and trainees who are going to be doing all this contact tracing sort of manually. Um, we don't have that workforce. So it would be great to stand it up. It would be a great way to employ a lot of people who are out of work. Uh, but the tech solution is tempting, um, particularly given that we don't have this, this huge workforce in place. This sort of idea of what you're, you're going to make us wait too long. Don't make us wait so long. Yeah. Um, so you're back. Good. I can hear you. Um, oh. oh, good. Uh, you, did, you disappeared for a while, but you're back. All right. So, We're having so, a storm here in, in Philly, too. So. Yeah, yeah. So obviously these things are going to happen. So we, we see this happening. And, and in a way, you don't want this to become 
a, a political question or a political argument we have every two weeks, you know, as as the the quarantines or the or the social distancing gets extended. But that would mean that we'd have to, I would assume, Dr. Buttonheim, have consensus right now. We should, and and we should remember too that these can be kind of regional or state-based solutions. So while it would be very nice to have some clear guidance from the CDC and the federal government about sort of how to do this at a national level, um, a lot of this um, authority can devolve to governors and state health departments to set up those benchmarks. We have states at very different points in this epidemic already, um, and they'll be cycling back through a resurgence of cases at different times. So it does have to be kind of one answer for the country. Although again, benchmarks for when a state would, you know, cycle in and out of social distancing would help. But I think we've seen amazing uh, leadership from a lot of governors around the country, really sort of politically, uh, you know, uh, doesn't really matter, red state, blue state, a lot of a lot of governors really stepping up um, and and taking advantage of the fact that state based or regional strategies are helpful here. All right. I might have missed your answer to this other question because of our technological sure. problems. So let me come back to this. So there's, you know, there are all kinds of components to this. Yes, uh, we might have contact tracing done through our phones. You you might be trying to somehow or other oblige, compel, or coerce people to have these tests. We, we know that people don't always <sighs> want to cooperate with public health initiatives. Uh, we could be talking about if, in fact, this disease does confer immunity. Uh, in some countries, they're talking about immunity certificates where you right, would show, right. show me your paper. Show me your papers. Um, I mean, but all of this runs up against social liberty. So, yeah, maybe parse that uh, for us again. Sure. And, and a lot of my research in, in regular times is on uh, vaccine acceptance, whether people are, are willing to get themselves and their kids vaccinated. And, you know, for the question of school entry, the Supreme Court and a lot of state courts have said, yes, it is okay to require people to be vaccinated, students to go to school because of the greater public health concerns. Yes, you should have the liberty to opt out, but your opting out puts other people at risk. I think it's going to be something very similar here. Um, if you would like to, you know, have your kid head back to school, or if you would like to reopen your business or go back to your job, uh, you either, you know, need to need to follow the testing program that we're recommending or you know need to do to have your 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 passport your immunity passport um, otherwise there's just too great a risk to the public health of of cases resurging and I think I mean this has been a very devastating pandemic for the U.S. socially, economically, for sure. Um, I hope people will think through the trade-offs uh, and decide, you know, even if I don't love the idea of, you know, running down to CVS for a mandated blood test, uh, the upside is we can start to, to, to go back to work and go back to school. Um, the other, you know, uh, metric that you, one hears about uh, a lot, although a little bit less lately, is the so-called R naught. This is the transmission mm -hmm. rate. So we we knew that at some, and the R naught, we should say, seems to vary across geography, seems to vary across different uh, uh, mitigation pro protocols, vary across lots of different things. And so at one point we were hearing that kind of maybe intrinsically or de natura, this disease has an R naught of two point five which would mean the average person with it, the average average person with a primary infection would do secondary infections to 2.5 on average people. But right. I'm wondering, how, but obviously that can be changed. And one of the ways you beat a disease is you get its R not below one. Um, right. Is that something that we have the capacity to measure in, in real time? I know we've done it with past pandemics, but I don't know whether we've done it kind of as a moving target. Sure. 
you pointed out, you know, there's the the pure R not just if the were able to run its course after being uh, you know susceptible to the disease. That's the scary number. That's the the two point five. Uh, but as you said, the programs that we do, uh, keeping people apart, uh, making sure we can test, making sure we can isolate cases and quarantine exposed contacts, uh, that all drives that number below one. And you can map that in real time. Um, you especially great article in our uh, Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report from the CDC that comes out every week. Last week's issue had a very detailed contact and case tracing of a community in Chicago. I think it was the first case in Chicago and where it spread. And you can see um, you know, this funeral and this right. birthday party led to this many exposures and this many cases. And that data writ large allows you to calculate sort of local time specific um, R-naughts. So, yeah, I think it was, in fact, two social gatherings, um, yeah. that, amazingly, that, that basically started it in Chicago. So I want to come back to something you said before, because it seems ultimately as though we're we're going to wind up with some kind of plan that is a little bit uh customized state yep. by state or region by region um and and it also seems as though president trump's only response to this is kind of a heuristic one you know that he'll know it somehow when it's time to restart which i find very alarming (laughs) (laughs) you should find that very alarming so i i don't know what about the gap that exists between those two things ideally you'd want to have an articulated national strategy that maybe did embrace some of the basic tenets of aei or cap or harvard Mm -hmm. or romer or slavitt or whatever you know and and so and maybe the governors would maybe work a little bit from there and they'd say well we're here in Idaho and it's a little bit different from New Jersey so this is how we're going to uh, adapt this basic template but is it okay just to work without that basic nationally agreed upon template or are there risks inherent in that well it's hard because you know our state boundaries are incredibly porous and if you're going to have a state strategy or even a regional strategy you have to make decisions about things like transit and you know flying and airports and people coming in to you know in just across the border driving or across the border uh on a plane or do we allow people from other countries? So for those kind of decisions, it really helps to have coordinated, you know, federal national guidelines. Ideally, the CDC would say, you know, we're, we're here to help. Here's a framework um, that each state can adapt and we're going to help you adapt it. And we are going to be producing the data and the metrics that let you make these decisions. And we're going to have something to say about sort of border, border crossing, both national and state, so that it's a, it's a feasible, implementable strategy. Right. I mean, part of the problem, I think, here is that people tend to think they live where they live, which is not an, an irrational thing for them to say. But, for example, here in Connecticut, I was I was party to a, a kind of little Twitter argument where people were saying, well, you know, there's 54 total you know, cases in Eastern Connecticut or something like that. And so why why should Eastern Connecticut even live with the same restrictions uh, um, imposed on the rest of Connecticut? But the re- reality is... Eastern Connecticut is like a 15 minute drive from places where the you know case rate is doubling every five days. So it's hard, though. I mean, if you can't even persuade people in different parts of a tiny state like Connecticut that they all have to live by the same playbook, yeah. it seems difficult to imagine an, an entire nation being able to absorb these messages. 
It is, and and I think um, you know you mentioned the the behavioral economics in my in my title. I think how we communicate these timelines to people is really important because it you it it's hard on the one hand for people to get just you know here's here's what's happening for the next two weeks, and then we'll tell you at the end of next two weeks what's going to happen after that. That's tough, but it's also really tough to hear we're eighteen months away from something that looks anything like the way we used to live. I think that's also very kind of distressing and demoralizing. So I think that balance from the communication standpoint of how we're going to manage this, you know, what we're doing, in some ways it's easier to just keep giving people kind of the the two-week, four-week, six-week window um, because that's something they can kind of wrap their minds around. Yeah, that makes sense. All right. Well, listen, thank you so much for your time. You're a terrific guest, by the way. I hope you'll come back at some point. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> happy to happy to join you. Thank Do- you. Dr. Allison Buttonheim is an associate professor at the University of Pennsylvania School of Nursing and an associate director of Penn's Center for Health Incentives and Behavioral Economics. Uh, we're going to switch gears, not at all, really, except that we're going to talk to a journalist from the Washington Post who's been covering some of these same questions in the next segment. So hang in there with us. So uh, some of the uh, major press organs of the United States, whether it's ProPublica or The New York Times, or in this case, The Washington Post, has just been doing amazing journalism uh, about this crisis. Uh, And we're about to get a a little kind of sample of that uh, from one of our guests here. Uh, I'm I'm hoping I'm not going to screw up this last name, but Yasmin, presumably you'll help me out here. Yasmin Abutaleb, how did I do? You did great. Okay. Yasmina Butaleb reports on health policy for the Washington Post. Before we begin with her, you know, remember when I said in the previous segment to Dr. Buttenheim that President Trump had indicated an almost 100 percent heuristic response to the whole question of when does the United States set up uh, again? When do we restart? How do you know what the benchmarks are? Here's what that sounded like. I will say this. I want to get it open as soon as we can. We have to get our country open, Jeff. Can you say, sir, what metrics you will use to make that decision? Uh, the metrics right here. That's my metrics. That's all I can do. I can listen to 35 people. At the end, I've got to make a decision. It's the biggest decision I've ever had to make. All right. So uh, if it's not clear, he just points to his noggin uh, when he says it's all here. It's right there. <laughs> so, I mean, uh, Yasmin, there has to be something behind all of that. And it does turn out that, A, there are multiple sets of teams meeting more or less under the direction of the White House or more or less with reporting duties to the White House. What do we know about that? Yeah, so we, my colleagues and I wrote a story this weekend about how basically there was no comprehensive plan about how to safely reopen the country, but there were a lot of task forces. So there's four teams that sort of unofficially or officially work on this response. You have the, you know, official president's coronavirus task force, which is overseen by Vice President Mike Pence and has agency heads from agencies across the government and then lots of other White House and other aides. Um, And that's the one that sort of existed from January, but had different leaders. You have Jared Kushner, who has his own team sort of sprinkled throughout the West Wing and different agencies. And that's sort of 
dismissively dubbed a shadow task force by some people in the government. You have this new economic task force that Trump um, has teased on Friday and I think is going to announce formally tomorrow who's on it that's focused on reopening the country and, and you know, bringing the economy back. And then you have an unofficial doctors group that we reported on in this weekend story, um, Dr. Burks, who's the White House Coronavirus Response Coordinator, with the permission of Vice President Pence, started convening six doctors on the task force, herself included, to have more scientific discussions about, you know, serology testing or safely reopening the country, basically discussions they felt the official task force didn't really allow for. Right. So when I uh, write my never-to-be-written book on organization and management policy, one of the premises of it will be, if you have 80 plans, you have no plans. If you have 40 plans, you probably have no plan. If you have 10 plans, ah, maybe you're verging towards a plan. But this seems to create such a multiplicity of viewpoints, and it's unclear as to who would synthesize the viewpoints coming out of those teams. And as we documented in the first segment of the show, you got Center for American Progress, you've got American Enterprise Institute, you've got Harvard's Safran Center, you've got individuals like Nobel Prize economist uh, Paul Romer. You know, all these different entities, plus state governments, plus some people I'm probably not thinking of, uh, are all coming up with plans. And, and at least nationally, there can only be one policy, right? So is there any path to getting there? That's a really good question. Our reporting so far does not indicate that there is a comprehensive plan. What we found is people are working on different parts of plans. Um, you've got the doctors working on, you know, broadening testing and doing antibody tests to try to see who has immunity and, and trying to think of ways you can methodically get people back into the workforce safely without triggering another, you know, terrible wave of infections. It's not clear whether they're going to be listened to in the end, um, because obviously you have the president and many of his advisors who are really eager to reopen and are, are fixated on economic and poll numbers. Um, and then you've got the economic folks who are fixated on um, not wanting a long recovery from from a recession. So what's not clear and is whether they're all working towards the same goal or whether people are picking off different pieces of this, but there's no way for them to all come together. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, in one of your stories, there was some reference to the Ebola outbreak. I just I don't remember there being this this, you know, panoply of different planning mechanisms and planning ideas. It seemed like ultimately, ultimately there was, you know, a, a specific approach. Uh, and instead, you have states waiting for the federal government to make a decision and governments, the federal government telling the states to figure it out on their own. And it, it seems like a recipe for for not knowing. But let's just talk about one thing that you guys have done a lot of reporting on. And we talked about it with Dr. Buttenheim. But at a certain point, yeah, we start sending some people back to work, but we start watching them very carefully too. that first wave of people who go back to work because we want to know if they're getting infected somehow. And if they do get infected, they, they need to be tested, they need to be isolated, and we need to know who else they could have infected. And so then we start talking about contact tracing. Maybe you can say a little bit more about what that term means. I mean, it, it's a pretty self-explanatory term, but on the other hand, there are different methods of doing it. 
Right. So, you know, public health experts say that the contact tracing is one of three fundamental pillars that you need to have for any um, effective strategy to start reopening the country and to make sure you prevent another massive outbreak from happening. So basically what that means is if someone is confirmed to have the disease, that you go and find everyone that they have been in contact with that you can detect people who have potentially been exposed and then could could possibly have the disease. And what that would allow is for, you know, imposing restrictions, but on smaller groups of people. So instead of, you know, what we're at now, where more than 90% of the country is staying at home and not going to work and, you know, social distancing, if you, if you have effective contact tracing, the thing to keep in mind is you need a lot of resources and a lot of people to do this effectively, which uh, there is no plan for right now. But basically what that would do is it would allow you to make sure the people People who are confirmed infected stay at home and their recent contacts quarantined for 14 days, but you don't have everything shut down. Right. So when people talk about this, I mean, knowledgeable people who have sincere interest in doing it, one of the terms they often use is an army. You need an army. Uh, in other words, mm-hmm. this isn't something you can do with hundreds of people. You would need thousands of people because, you know, let's say that you, God forbid, uh, are COVID positive in, during w- one of these windows of reopening the government. So you start making a list of everybody that you've talked to. But I mean, you're, people are going to have to be assigned to you uh, and they're going to have to reinvestigate places you've been. What if you took mass transit? Who could have been on that mass transit who could have been exposed to you. I mean, this is a big lift. Maybe you can say more about it. Yeah. So, you know, there's an estimate that, you know, you're going to need 100,000 additional contact tracers. And there are groups that have called for, you know, more than $3 billion in emergency funding from Congress to be able to fund this type of effort, to be able to do contact tracing on the scale that you need to do it across the country to make sure that you mitigate and prevent a second massive outbreak from happening. Otherwise, if you don't do that, otherwise what's going to happen is exactly how we got here in the first place. Um, you know, health officials were trying to do contact tracing in the beginning, but they didn't have good testing. Uh, there were a lot of limitations. There were resource limitations. And so the disease was spreading sort of unabated beyond detection. So what you want to do to prevent that from happening again is to be able to have enough people. And it's it's really resource intensive. It's hard. It's like it's hard, laborious work um, because you're tracing that every single contact that someone might have come into touch with. And like you said, if it's public transit, if you've gone to work, that's a lot of people. Um, so a lot of money and a lot of people are going to be needed to do this effectively. Right. And, and I think there's I mean, there's a, one area of this where the good news is the bad news. So the good news is that almost all of us are carrying around with us devices that are pretty good at, even as they're set up right now, pretty good at ultimately tracking where we've been. Um, and, and presumably, and I think we already know that Apple and Google are willing to, to kind of fine tune that a little bit more uh, and presumably on a voluntary basis, have our smartphones, you know, actually compiling and maybe even uploading information about where we've been. Presumably, you know, there'd be a a thing where you'd point a a camera at a QR code as you got on the metro, Yasmin. So there'd be a record of that and there'd be a record of everybody else's on everybody else's phone. Who else was on that metro card uh, car that you got on? But, you know, the problem here is People are all are already pretty paranoid about what big data companies know about us. Here, we'd be expected, I think, to sort of volunteer to have p- 
big data companies and presumably the government at the public health level know even more about us. And I, I don't know, uh, have you guys looked much at the, the almost ethics and politics of that? Yeah, so that the Apple and Google announcement is they haven't actually built the app yet, but they w they have the capability so that if a public health department or a state health department wants to build its own app, that it could do that. And they would sort of provide the software for them to be able to do that. Uh, what a couple sources have told me is, you know, it would actually be anonymized. It wouldn't be like my phone, Yasmin, um, and I, I input that I've tested positive. So then everyone can see that me, Yasmin, has tested positive. I would basically be assigned a random set of digits, but using location data. So everyone would be assigned a random set of digits. And using location data, it could tell you, for instance, that you were close to me and I was confirmed positive. So the privacy considerations have been, you know, t taken into consideration. The bigger question is, you know, we're starting to hear from our sources. There is already resistance to this idea among some and the administration. You saw some Fox News personalities already sort of equating it to Big Brother or the surveillance state. So the question is whether the administration ends up wanting to move forward with something like this. I mean, states will make a decision, but it's a question of will people be scared or skeptical or feel like it's a further infringement on their privacy? Right. States will make the, the, the decision, and that's already happening. Uh, you guys have reported on stuff that's happened in Utah, in Massachusetts, in, in San Francisco. But that's a patchwork. And one of the things that presumably would happen as we got into the early stages of an, a United States restart would be people would be moving around a lot. You know, I mean, I don't know. I can drive 35 minutes north and be in Massachusetts. Uh, presumably, as people go back to work, people start moving around. Um, they're going to come in contact uh, with people who live in states that have a slightly different system. I mean, don't these systems all have to match up eventually? Right. I mean, a patchwork is certainly not ideal for all the reasons that you laid out. Um, you know, people can easily cross state lines. And um, you sort of saw the problem with patchwork regulations with the social distancing. You know, some states like in Florida or some states in the south were much late, much later to the game than, you know, in the northeast or on the coast. Um, or Illinois or wh whatever it might be to impose social distancing measures. So you saw sort of delayed outbreaks in these different places. Um, I think it's the same. It's the same concern with not having a national strategy emanating out of the White House right now. But that's also why states feel like they need to take it upon themselves to start crafting plans on their own. They don't feel like it's already mid-April. They're sort of hurtling towards the May 1st opening date. The state governors themselves are coming under pressure to start reopening. So, you know, they feel like they need to have some plan and they're not really seeing that leadership from the White House right now. I mean, the good news is that there are a lot of people right now who aren't working. Um, and it seems as though whether we're talking about Massachusetts or Utah or San Francisco or uh, other people talking about the Peace Corps, uh, I think the, the Journal of American Medicine was talking about just suspending the first year of training for 20,000 incoming medical students and having them do this instead. It does seem as though anyway, there are a lot of ideas for where you get the people. I don't know if you want to mention any of those. Right. So, I mean, you could have um, people who volunteer. I know after we put out that story, we actually got reader emails from people who said, you know, they wanted to figure out how to volunteer in their state. 
Um, there is an idea floated to use uh, the Peace Corps, which I think is about 7,000 people who, um, you know, weren't able to go on their missions this year, so they could potentially be used. So, like you said, I mean, there are different ideas for different workforces that have had their operations suspended or going, there's going to be some time before they can go back to doing what they originally planned, who could easily be trained and sort of scaled up to carry this out across different states. I would just end by saying it's been a long time. I, I'm one of the people who did not want to watch the movie Contagion at this time, but I believe I, I but I did watch it on an airplane one day, which was really stupid. Uh, but it was closer to the time that it came out. But my memory is that one of the big problems in Contagion is that Gwyneth Paltrow's character lies about where she's been. And in fact, she has stopped to have an assignation with a former lover or something in a city that she, her travel plans are not associated with. So so people's, you know, occasional untruthfulness may also be a problem here. Good luck to all of us. Well, anyway, thank you very much for uh, for spending some time with us and uh, lending some of your expertise. God knows the Washington Post has just become, as usual, indispensable in all this. Uh, Yasmin Abutaleb reports on health policy for the Washington Post. When we come back, we will shift our focus a little bit. We're going to talk about whether there's any use being a philosopher at a time like this. All right. So let me say some thank yous. Uh, at the beginning of the show, I did ask everybody to either pray or say their mantras or do some secular humanist version thereof so that the power didn't go out in this huge windstorm. And so far, so good. Thank you very much, whoever is responsible for that. Uh, it looks good that we might be able to finish this show. Uh, meanwhile, uh, there are a lot of people to thank. Uh, in the studio right now uh, is Kat Pastor. She uh, is the reason that I can stay home and still do this show. She's keeping everything running there. Uh, there's no way I can ever thank her enough for that. Senior producer Betsy Kaplan is the producer of this particular episode, and thanks very much to her. Uh, we're especially grateful these days to our tech people like Joe Koss and Gina Matruda uh, in the background, and our bosses, our level-headed bosses like Katie Tularski and Tim Rasmussen. So thanks to all of you. So, you know, there's there's this weird law of recency. I forget what it's called, but, you know, there's that, that kind of strange thing when you encounter something or think about something that you haven't thought about for a long time or ever, and then suddenly it happens multiple times. So yesterday I was, I spent quite a bit of yesterday thinking about Thomas More, um, and then I read a piece by our next guest, uh, Agnes Callard, uh, uh, and there was Thomas More again. And... So I was thinking about Thomas More partly because uh, how, how com complex his 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 uh, portrayal has become. We knew him one way from the Paul Schofield movie A Man for All Seasons and the accompanying play, and then Hilary Mantel got hold of him and portrayed him as a, uh, a, f a fanatic and a somewhat bloodthirsty uh, fanatic at that. Uh, Agnes Callard is an associate professor of philosophy at the University of Chicago and a monthly columnist for The Point magazine and a contributor to The New York Times. In this case, it's The New Yorker where she was writing, and she was writing about a very different question, although a not completely unrelated question, which is, what do thinkers do? What do thinkers do at a time like this? And ultimately, are they particularly useful? Uh, Agnes Callard, welcome to our show. Hi, thanks for having me. 
So I, I hope I've summarized uh, the premise of your piece. Uh, it, it is that question of thought, uh, people who think deeply about questions, whether they're philosophers uh, or from some other part of the humanities. So what is it that, that you are exploring about that group of people? I guess something that I've heard a lot online is the idea that what, what's happening right now is some kind of a test, like that it proves something, right? that it shows us what's really important or who we really are. And I've been asking like, okay, well, what does it show about me then? <laughs> what does it bring out about me? Um, what, you know, in what way can I shine or in what way can I be strong? Um, and I found that the answer is like, not so many ways. <laughs> um, uh, and that sort of puzzled me and I've been thinking through it and I've been thinking through sort of variety of kinds of intellectual heroism. So one kind is the Thomas More kind, right? Where there's somebody who, you know, is is silenced or it refuses to say, speak against their conscience, right? And obviously I'm not in that situation. Um, and there's another kind of intellectual heroism that's like the the heroism the heroism of the of the sort of social activist, right? So we've had a lot of intellectual social activists like in our country. Martin Luther King is like the sort of classic example, right? But that's a way for an intellectual to be a hero, right? And I'm not in that position either. Um, and, you know, I was reading these essays by this intellectual, um, Jean Amory, who, um, uh, you know, he was a, uh, went through the Second World War, he was in concentration camps, and he sort of wrote about the intellectual's life in the time of crisis, and he concluded, like, there is no role, the intellectual is useless, it's just useless in a crisis. And he makes a really persuasive case. Um, and... Um, and yet somehow, like I was persuaded in a way by what he wrote, um, that his own intellectual life, his own love of literature, he had written a novel, that none of that really helped him endure or be strong in the concentration camps. Actually, if anything, it made it all harder for him. Um, but what I started to sort of reflect upon was that it just might not be true that the crisis is a test, <laughs> that that might not be the best way of thinking about it, that it might be actually that it's really quite a destructive situation that we're in. And Amari was in a much more destructive situation. Um, so he was in a situation where in some way, his very sensibility, his very understanding intelligence were also brutalized by what was happening to him, right? And so he drew these conclusions like that it was worth nothing. And so my thinking is like humanistic learning of the kind that we do, of the kind that I do when I teach uh, you know, in regular classrooms, it's really valuable and really important. And it can be hard to keep that in view right now, but it's important to keep it in view. And it's important not to see this as a test that certain things that kind of like need a better environment to flourish are failing. Right, so uh, here, let me just respond uh, in, in my own way to, to what you wrote and what you're saying now. I think there's an argument against expecting philosophy or thought to be useful in real time in the moment. Um, you know, and, and obviously we could extend this to some absurd level. I mean, it, it, if you're in a boat that's caught in a perfect storm and in a whirlpool that's about to suck it under the ocean, it doesn't really make any difference uh, whether you're a Kantian or not. You know, I mean, that's philosophy isn't useful in that situation. But this might be a situation closer to that situation than it is to something that is amenable to reflection. But my argument would be things need to settle 
ideas need to settle over time. I mean, if we had known Thomas More in his lifetime, we probably, at least given our own sensibilities right now, would have disliked him. You know, and he certainly was very mm. comfortable with burning <laughs> Protestants. You know, it's, it's an open question whether he actually burned any of them himself, but he was certainly down with burning Protestants. On the other hand, Utopia, mm. Utopia is a pretty good, uh, even in, in 2020, his, his book Utopia really kind of holds up pretty well in, in terms of some of the arguments that it makes. And similarly, mm. I'll stop babbling in just a second, I promise. Uh, I want to, I'll just babble one more thing. In college, I was very impatient with Ralph Waldo Emerson because it seemed to me that he didn't do anything. You know, he wasn't particularly, yeah, he was an abolitionist kind of, but he was, wasn't particularly useful in the moment. There's that story that turns out to be complete fabrication about Thoreau in jail and Emerson comes to visit him and says, why are you in here? And he says, why aren't you in here? None of that's true. But I, and I find over the years that if I l let things settle down a little bit, Emerson is more useful to me than Thoreau. Um, but you know, he might not have been quite as useful in 1865. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I, I, I totally do. And I think that's completely right, that another way to frame this is like, maybe um, one way to think about it is, who are the philosophers that are useful now? They might not be the ones who are alive right now. <laughs> so like, I read a piece on Bloomberg the other day that was like, what that basically argued that the philosophical framing that is at the background of how we're thinking about the ethics of um, things like opening the country again is basically Rawlsian, okay? So Rawls had this idea that the fair or the right thing to do is something where you would agree to that being done to you if you didn't know that you were the person it was going to be done to, so to speak, right? So it's like, suppose you didn't know whether you were an old person or a young person um, and you have to, you know, like agree, like, should we should we do the following plan? And it might benefit old people more might benefit young people more, right? If you would agree to it either way, then that's a sign that it's like a fair plan. So what this person was arguing is that that's like at the background of how we are thinking about all of this. That's the basic ethics, the basic ethical framework that we're applying to these decisions is Rawls, right? And so which is to say, he's very, very useful. He might be the most, if, if that's true, okay? He might be the most useful thinker with respect to the coronavirus right now, um, if that's right. Um, but you know, that that's um, that it takes a little while for philosophical thinking to sort of trickle down into um, thus becoming the background framework for how people think about things. And so another way to think about the test is it isn't a test of the thinking being done right now. It's a test test of the thinking that was done in the past. Right. I have to make an announcement right now. Uh, it's a very personal announcement. It's only directed at one person. It's directed to my son. Um, to my son, who is, I believe, listening right now, I did not put Agnes Callard up to this. Uh, the reason that I have to say this is like within the last week, he and I have been walking around discussing some of the things that are going on, some of the ways in which inequalities are playing out. And uh, I did, as mm. I routinely do, invoke exactly that Rawlsian thought experiment that you just laid out, <laughs> that, that, that you would have you, to design, oh, cool. a, design a moral or ethical system. You have to do one where you wouldn't know which role you occupied, that you might be a person with severe disabilities. You might be a person with right. you know anything and you don't know what race you are. You don't know what class you are. And if you'd still be willing to live with it then that's a good sign that it's moral. And it seems to me, 
I think, first of all, I think you're also very right about this. And, and this is where philosophy is going to become essential because already people are talking about what they refer to as risk benefit analysis as they begin to discuss mm -hmm. when you can open the country. When can you reopen the country? Well, risk benefit analysis means, you know, you, you come up with a model that says if we, if we restart the company, the country on May 15th, there'll be a 45% chance of a significant restart of the disease. Uh, there'd be an 80% chance that uh, people who would not otherwise die, both just regular patients and frontline healthcare workers, uh, would not only contract the disease but die. The benefit would be X hundred thousand jobs restored and some amelioration of, of the temporary poverty that people are thrust into. I mean, Agnes, at a certain point, this does become a philosophical as opposed to a metric question. Right. It, I suppose it would be a metric question if you could put a dollar value on every single thing, mm. right? Right. Then it would be a metric question. But quite often we are, we are unwilling to do that. And I, I think we might be rightly unwilling to put some limits on doing that. Um, and so, um, you know, wh when we think of it in terms of, balancing um, sort of like rights and duties and what can what can people ask for? What can they demand? How can they demand to be treated, right? The idea that those considerations come into play and that it isn't only a matter of, um, so to speak, how to maximize the total dollar value uh, existing of human life at a certain time, right? Um, then I think, yes, it becomes a philosophical question. Right. Uh, the last thing that I would say about all this, and this is a fascinating piece, and people should uh, get right on the New Yorker website and read What the Humanities Can Do in a Crisis by our guest Agnes Callard, is you, know, you never know what's going to be useful to you from that whole field of thought. Yeah, Rawls seems very useful right now. But, you know, I mean, like Ezra Pound was a horrible person, not a philosopher, obviously, but a, just a horrible, crazy, dreadful person. But, you know, when I think of some of his words, I wouldn't want to march into a crisis like this one without some of Pound's poetry as part of the wind in mm -hmm. my sails. I mean, you kind of never know, right? Yeah, that's right. And like, I think Jean-Amari would not have thought that his reflections on the experience of torture, physical torture by the Gestapo and being in concentration camps would be useful to me now. right? Exactly. Um, exactly. So I, I, th I think that that's, that's all true. But I also still want to make the sort of stepping back point, which is that it may still be even though these things are useful, and they're useful in unpredictable times. It's also in some way not because they're useful, that they're good. <laughs> that's awesome. Um, that we, is, I, we actually are going to have to stop the conversation there, although that's a really good place yeah. to stop. Uh, and Agnes Callard, I hope you'll come back sometime too. Very, very interesting piece. Uh, we have to go. We stayed on the air, I think. I'm so excited about that. So thanks to everybody who helped out here, especially Cat Pastor, uh, to all of our guests too. Stay safe, stay well. Uh, we will be back with this. Well, I think we have a rerun tomorrow and a new show about hermits. Uh, on Wednesday.